Okay, I think, all right, we are recording. Okay, cool. Well, hello everyone, um, and welcome to our social media final project in ILR LR4035, um, Intersectional Disability Studies. Um, this is really exciting. I'm really excited to be here and to kind of get into this topic with you guys, but um, I think first makes sense to kind of introduce ourselves and um, kind of who we're talking to. So my name is Dylan Kirsch. I'm a junior in the ILR school here at Cornell from Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and I took this class because I'm uh, hopefully going to medical school at some point and um, am really looking to kind of deepen my understanding about healthcare um, for people with disability. Uh, my um, name is Brian yeah. Nahara. Oh. There you go. <laughs> oh, my, my name is Brian Nahara. And I'm a senior in the ILR school, and I'm from Los Angeles. And my interest in this class was I uh, I took the class before this, which is Intro to Disability Studies, and I really enjoyed it. And I never really learned about any disability studies, and I thought intersectionality would be a great step forward. Um, yeah, I'm Caroline Horgan, and I'm a junior in the ILR school. And I took this uh, one level of this course last semester, and I just found it super interested, interesting, and I wanted to continue my learning in this area. And also, I'm um, interning at Biogen in Boston this summer um, in HR, and um, that's kind of one of the key departments in this conversation, as we've learned through our research. So I just want to go into it with as much knowledge as possible and be able to be a real agent of change um, in such an important topic like this. Fantastic. Well, so I think we've all touched on the fact that we've taken this class for different reasons, but kind of, I mean, what class are we taking? We're taking what's called intersectional disability studies. And at Cornell, they're are a couple of classes that concern themselves um, with uh, disability studies and kind of how the world views disability and how um, what the pertinent issues are as we face them. Um, and this class is a little bit different in the sense that, you know, we're not just looking at disability because disability actually cannot be tackled on a single issue basis, right? It actually becomes really important to examine disability through these multiple lenses in order to understand kind of all the problems and the issues that we uniquely face as, as a result of our compounding identities. And so what we set out to do was we set out to kind of engage with social media to work on one specific um, issue within disability justice. And we obviously chose to work with healthcare um, injustice or justice. And so that's what kind of what we're going to get into. Um, Brian, do you want to talk about kind of what intersectionality is? Like, give us a brief intro. You know, what is that word? What does that even mean? Yeah, uh, intersectionality refers to looking through the world through multiple identities, not just uh, disabilities. This can include race, socioeconomic level, and even uh, gender or uh, sexuality identities. And what we see here in the medical field, there isn't very much focus on it. And we can see it through uh, many healthcare settings where uh, many people don't get the same treatment as others. And it's, a, it's an ongoing issue. And throughout this, uh, throughout this podcast, we're gonna talk about ways to approach it and solutions that could be plausible in the future. 
Caroline, do you yeah, have anything to add? Yeah. Um, I was just going to add um, that, you know, with the idea of intersectionality applied to healthcare, you know, we've learned that the problem isn't fixed until we include the most marginalized groups. And a lot of research out there has just kind of looked at one group um, and hasn't applied the lens that there's so many people out there who belong to multiple groups, multiple identities, and all of these compound to um, just create multiple inequities, um, especially in such a large system. Um, and we've really kind of gotten into the nitty gritty of this and really looked at all of these identities and tried to come up with some solutions for uh, the issue at hand. I think the the analogy that really, you know, as we as I look back on this semester of work, the analogy that kind of really spoke to me was the car accident analogy where, you know, there's an intersection, right, where there's been an accident and nobody does anything in this scenario because they all claim the accident was somebody else's fault. And it, it's it's so perfect in understanding what intersectionality is, right, that you know, it, it, I think Akimi Nishida says it really well when she says, like, this intersectional framework actually enables the acknowledgement of these multiple identities, right? It, it, it enables the fact that, you know, there's all sorts of people coming in from all these different intersections, and there's this one big accident, right? We can't point to one person as to why this happened. We have to point to all of the reasons, all of the confounding identities, the confounding streets that came together to make this accident happen. Um, I think, you know, I love this idea that, you know, to do, we talked about doing intersectionality. It's about factoring in everyone's lived experiences. It's not about like, you know, it's not a blanket issue. It's not, okay, you know, just because you um, live in a low socioeconomic setting, you know, this is your experience, right? Like everyone has their own experiences. And I think that's so beautiful in the sense that it, it it kind of validates everyone's lived experiences. It doesn't, you know, every one of us lives a different way and everyone has experienced the world in a different way, but why? And I think intersectionality really does answer that. Right. And I think that this um, idea of the crossroads and the accident also really explains this very well, because, you know, if you want to blame something on one cause you really can't and then everyone's going to get away with no consequences so it's about looking at the big picture and um i think people one of the first steps is people owning up and taking that responsibility yeah. and saying i'm responsible partly for this accident who else is and what can we do to uh fix it and i think we can all do that and i think it's really pertinent to the topic that we're going to get into which let's get into it um we have the foundation, right? We've talked about intersectionality. We've talked about the fact that we can't, you know, just look at these issues from a one lens. But what what exactly are we looking at in terms of healthcare and justice? And let me kind of illustrate what we're talking about in terms of one story. And I think this story really does a great job in encapsulating this. And I'd love to get both of your thoughts. There was um, a Michael Hickson is a 46-year-old black man with quadriplegia and anoxic brain injury. So his he had some event where he didn't have enough oxygen flow to his brain and a lot of that tissue died. Um, and he died of COVID on June 11th, 2020 at a hospital in Texas. So we're talking about like peak COVID, like nobody really knows what's going on. And 
and let's keep in mind, right, this is a black man with disability. And, you know, when his wife, Melissa, asked the doctors why Michael was was not receiving these treatments that everybody else was receiving, you know, I can't say for sure, but like, let's rattle some off, right? Like some antiviral, experimental antivirals, like ventilators, something. And Michael's doctor replied that he didn't have a good quality of life in his normal state of health. Like, that's ridiculous, right? As a result of his disability, the physician on staff you know, kind of assume that he was expendable, right? Like, oh, you know, he doesn't live like a great quality of life anyway. So let's focus our efforts on people that do. It's like, let's let's not waste these precious resources on someone with a poor quality of life. And I, I think this so perfectly embodies what we're getting after today, right? Is this idea that the healthcare system has is, is just taught physicians that disabled lives don't matter, that you know, okay, like in a time of necessity and need, we don't need to, because people have a poor quality of life, which is absolutely not true. We don't need to apply those same, you know, resources. And I think that's such like an interesting, you know, to, to start this off, to kick this off. I'd love to hear what you guys think um, kind of about this story and kind of framing it all, right? Because I think it's a great intro into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, yeah, I just... I agree. It's pretty ridiculous how someone's life is just invaluable. And it's just an example of how uh, ableist notions are uh, very current in our current uh, medical system. Yeah. And I guess in this case, we have to think about how would the situation be if the patient was not disabled? Totally. Uh, a black man disabled who would not be disabled, my bad. How would he be treated? Uh, honestly, I think he would have probably received better care. Yeah. Uh, he would have been taken more seriously. Yeah. And this this perspective is what we need to change. We need to change in viewing people with disabilities not as a disposable life, but more as a life itself. And actually prioritize people with disability. Yep. They are in most need of help. And let's say veterans, veterans, why do veterans get uh, more priority and more respect it's just crazy to see how how different these experiences could be and how the the veteran factor can change the perspective of right. an american physician and how they treat them no right yeah caroline go ahead i was just gonna say i completely agree and you know just because someone has a disability doesn't mean they can't be healthy within their disability and a lot of what is going on is happening, you know, because someone is completely healthy within their disability and then they go to get, go to the doctor as everyone does. And this is where the inequities come in, um, whether that's because of a lack of equipment, um, no height adjustable uh, chairs, not the right scales, and then illnesses that can get checked out so easily. We have so many resources, so many technologies nowadays, cancer, um, lung diseases, any basic disease that is completely preventable um, goes unseen because there's just a lack of basic equipment. Um, and Dr. Lisa Iazoni even pointed out in an article, you know, there's been height adjustable barber chairs around for a hundred plus years, but healthcare institutions can't get these in their yeah. buildings. And yeah. that just seems ridiculous to me. And it's like, 
it's lives at stake here. Yeah. And we can't, if, you know, doctors are the people who are supposed to be saving lives. Right. So if we can't even rely on them, then that just shows there's a huge issue and something really does need to be done. No, absolutely. And I think the root of the problem, right, at the end of the day is that people with disabilities, like they, there's a bunch of research out there that says they report a significantly worse quality of healthcare than patients without disabilities, right? And we just illustrated perfect examples of that. And I think that's the core of this, right? That people with disabilities go their entire lives reporting worse healthcare, worse quality of healthcare than those without disabilities. And we're going to get into this. I, we have an entire episode plan where we're going to get into this, but I, I really like your point, Caroline, that, um, and it's so evident, again, in the research that we kind of looked at that, um, chronic disease is such an amazing example of how, you know, um, people with disability are not getting the healthcare that they need. And I think chronic illness is an interesting case study in the sense that, you know, if you follow it for a long time and you follow it really closely, there's a lot of times where it's, it's actually not that deadly, right? Like if you follow your diabetes really well over time and you control that, right? Like, yes, like there is a lot of healthcare that goes into that of like, you know, figuring out your insulin and figuring out like when to give it, right? There's a lot that goes into that. But if you manage it really well, there's nothing to say that you can't live a, a great healthy life with type one diabetes. It's about the fact that people without disabilities get that healthcare, people with don't get that same preventative healthcare, right? We don't, they don't, doctors don't know how to address that, right? They don't know how to address the fact that like, you know, cardiac, um, cardiac disease is like a very big issue, but how can we meet the patient where they are and say, okay, I understand that you're in a wheelchair, but how can we, how can we get some exercise? How can we get some exercise on a daily basis? Right there. It's just, oh, I don't know. I don't know this. This makes me uncomfortable. I have no idea. So I'm just going to ignore it. And right. Of course there are worse health outcomes because the, the same you know, Brian, you come to me in your fifties and I tell you to have like to exercise more. So, you know, you don't have a heart attack in the next 10 years as, as that's a standard of care. Right. But I think it's a, it's an amazing example in the sense that that's not, that doesn't happen with people with disabilities because physicians are not taught to go that extra mile to say, you know, okay, I understand that you're coming to me with disability, but let's figure out a way to be preventative. Let's figure out a way for you to be healthy and we can't, it's the same thing, right? We can't provide this like blanket advice and just say, yep, we're good. We're good now. And I think that I, I like this, and this is like, right, this is your evidence right here. A 2011 study from researchers at, at University of Kansas examined health disparities between adults with physical and cognitive disability and those without, just straight up. And they found that people with disabilities had a significantly higher rate of chronic disease than those without. And that was cardiac disease, asthma, diabetes, high cholesterol, et cetera. And the reason was because of the disparity in preventative care. It was not because the people with disability are unhealthy. It was the fact that the healthcare system was not taking care of them in the same way. Um, and we could go on and on. I mean, Caroline, like, talk to me about this ba barriers to healthcare checklist research, which is this next study that we kind of looked at. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, just to add on in general here too, I think we can even add a lens of intersectionality as well. And, yeah. you know, we just brought up a bunch of physical disabilities, but there's also mental disabilities as well. And what if someone, you know, has anxiety, PTSD, other types of uh, mental disabilities, and then they're also a person of color or another marginalized race, um, or they are coming from low income. Yeah. Um, and then there's financial barriers involved as well, which also apply more frequently to people with disabilities. And there's just all these identities um, coming into play here. Um, and I think that that just kind of shows, you know, there's so many problems that are adding to the bigger problem. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, when we look at what is the root of this issue, you know, we want to know that our doctors are being trained to be able to, you know, want to have patients with disabilities and yeah. want to genu genuinely help everyone who comes their way, but we're not seeing this. Um, and I was just, you know, this made me think of one study with uh, Dr. Lisa Izoni again, and she was on a Zoom call. Um, she organized it with a bunch of physicians from around the country, and they were granted uh, to be able to be anonymous. And as the call went on, um, a lot of them began to admit that they do refuse to help people with disabilities. And um, this is just shocking to me because, again, you know, these are the people, the doctors are the people in our communities who are supposed to be fixing things right. and helping people. Um, and the doctors on this call couldn't see that um, Dr. Izoni's in a wheelchair herself. So this, you know, uh, kind of made them think that they could just be free with how they spoke. And right. um, it really gave this level of honesty that you wouldn't get otherwise. Um, that is, you know, this is not something that people are willingly going to admit to. Um, and they kind of went over some possible, there's, you know, the solutions are hard, but uh, one Dr. Lagu said that, um, you know, we need to start tracking people with disabilities as they come in, you know, getting it in a system yeah. or else you can't monitor who's coming in and out of doctor's offices, who's getting helped and who isn't. And um, the doc this doctor mentioned that, you know, they do have to put in race in their systems. But um, here's a perfect example of the lack of intersectionality. Like, OK, you're putting race in. But what about someone who comes from a marginalized uh race group but also has a disability where is that or, coming into play? or is like of low socioeconomic status right like, right sorry. like we're not tracking any of these things yeah. and in order to kind of take a step in the right direction um you know first doctors need to start, we haven't even gotten into this yet but doctors need to first be trained how to uh exactly. deal with patients and not just say I can't help you. I'm sorry. This isn't my area of expertise. Right. Please go to someone else. Um, and, you know, there also needs to start being this lens of perspective that can address the most marginalized first. And then we start looking upwards because, you know, not everyone can be healthy until the most marginalized groups are being put first. Exactly. Yeah. To, uh, to add on to what Caroline was saying, um, Socioeconomic uh, barriers are also present not only with people 
with disabilities, but also without disabilities. Yeah. For example, uh, Dylan, you said you're talking about a uh, diabetes. Yeah. Uh, penicillin is a very important drug. They they need it to live. Exactly. And in the current health system right now, uh, the prices of penicillin, uh, they're astronomically high. Yeah. And you know, people with lower incomes, they can't easily access that, and they don't have the resources to access that. And well, they are dependent on it because their lives, they need it to live. And all, like even talking about financial concerns and and people who have disabilities such as sensory difficulties, imagine how hard it is for them to have th these conversations with the healthcare providers. No, it's pretty hard for them to not only understand what is going on, but sometimes some people can't process the information fast enough. And these multitude levels of barrier just makes it even harder for just people in general to get the treatment they deserve. And it's just part of the reason why the current healthcare system right now is just, it's not just, and it needs to be improved. I agree. And, and I think it's really important to note also that history, right, comes into play here. I mean, we can't have this conversation without acknowledging the fact that the distrust between people with disabilities and science and medicine in general, it, it takes root in medicine's really complex relationship with eugenics, right? We we just can't, we can't deny that. We can't hide that. And I think it's become becomes really important to acknowledge that head on and say, you know, this is this is the root of why we deal with what we do. And it's, you know, we look back at history and our unfortunate history that medicine and the institution itself has been very complicit in in horrifying um, procedures like involuntary sterilization, forced institutionalization, denial of treatment, right? And and we talk about intersectionality and and these these inhumane practices, these terrible like taking away lives have affected women more than men. Black, Latinx, and indigenous peoples more than whites, and the poor more than the wealthy, right? So we have to acknowledge that head on. And it, it makes total sense why people with disability um, would not trust the institution, right? They've never sought to serve them equally. It's never been on the radar. And so we know like this is super complex and long. We know like this ties back to this idea of the medical model of disability. Um, I really like the way that Dan Manning, who's the litigation director for the Greater Boston Legal Services, says that, you know, it's not that healthcare professionals don't recognize the independence or capabilities of people with disabilities. If they can't fix the person, right, which is what medical schools do in general, they don't want to deal with it. Um, I think this becomes really interesting, right, as we talk about solutions and we talk about, you know, where we go from here. The medical model of disability comes from this idea that medicine is there to fix, that you can, you are a technician in the sense that there is something wrong and let me fix it so that you can be healthy again. And if you can't do that, there's no place for me. And I think that's where, that's the key, right? That's where we're wrong in the sense that, you know, it's all connected in the sense that we are looking at not only a medical model of disability, we're looking at a very wide and complex history of the you know, relationship between institutionalized medicine and disability. And we're looking at the fact that we're living in 2023 after a global pandemic where people with disability um, and you know, we're including intersectional analysis here, 
were treated and had way worse health outcomes than than anybody else. And so and it makes sense, right? So I think it goes back to this question. And it's nothing we can't we cannot answer this because I think it, it's very rhetorical in nature. The people supposedly saving lives, the people that are supposedly helping, right, cannot even advocate for putting an end to these barriers. So how can we expect to see any change? Right. We we right. say done all these progress, but it's still beyond significant. There's still research coming out every month, every day that's saying that there's dis- that the disparities are still there. And so I think right. I agree. We talk about why this is. And, you know, the Surgeon General said it perfectly. The reason, I think, for a lot of this and a lot of this continuation is that we're not training our our physicians right. That the Surgeon General actually cited in his 2010 Healthy People report that healthcare training was this major barrier for high-quality care for people with disabilities. That, yes, we have to acknowledge the fact that we live in this very complex relationship. But at the end of the day, it was the fact that training, and it is the fact that training is not adequate. Um, we're not training our healthcare professionals, right? And we're going to talk about this. So, Brian, like, talk to me. What what did we find? What do we? What does it look like? What does the current state of medical education look like? You know, as we there's a there's a couple different articles that we looked at we interviewed some people what does this all look like what 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 is med, what are medical students or what are medical schools teaching their students right now yeah so according to our research 52% of medical schools reported having a disability awareness program but considering selection bias the rate may actually be as low as 23% which is like more than half and apparently there is an average of 10.2 hours during their four years of school learning about disability awareness and the most common format is just having a person with disability as guest speakers either in large or group settings and the most common topic was communication skills and this looking at our current healthcare setting, it looks like it may not be the most optimal method for medical education for, for the future and the present. And the medical education isn't just it's, just, it's just not competent in teaching what it is to not only help people with disabilities, but take into account every factor that is needed to just give overall better health to everyone. Yeah. I agree. And it's like, I mean, that the statistic, the 10.2 hours blew my mind, right? The average, like four years of school, right? (laughs) Like, Brian, you're about to finish up your fourth year of undergrad. We're about to finish up our third. To say that they spent 10.2 hours over here, four years learning about disability awareness, it's like, it doesn't even compute to me. It's like, what? Like, how can we call that education competent? it's like I spent 10.2 hours a week, like on my econ homework, like, come on. And like, that's not going to, I mean, it might, but <laughs> might like, I'm not going to do econ for the rest of my life. But what doctors do is they are going to treat people with disability for the rest of their life. Caroline, talk to me. How did you feel about, you know, reading those statistics? I mean, I felt the same way. I thought that, I mean, it 
was really quite shocking to me, um, you know, in the sense of how little time is being given to what you would think is just something that should be so basic um, in healthcare professionals' knowledge. Um, and, you know, but when we, as we just spoke about this medical model, it's not surprising in that sense, you know, our society is so rooted in the ideas that we have to fix people with disabilities that they're not even training people in medical school to fix because it's not even something that, uh, you know, people even want to address and talk about. Um, and, you know, when, as you brought up, like COVID made all of this super apparent as well. Yeah. And, you know, doctors were saying, where it's really great news that 75% of deaths are now people with multiple comorbidities, you know, that also shocked me. Like how can the people who are advocating for health and lives be happy that the ones dying are the ones that need help and need, you know, recognition the most. Um, and so it's surprising in a sense and also not surprising in a sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, again, it just sheds light on we do we really need a change starting right from the beginning. Like sure. if doctors are going to be able to, you know, deal with the issues at hand and this needs to start in medical school, this needs to start early on and it needs to be a societal change to, you know, more of the social model. Um, where we see society as the disabling factor exactly. and we recognize that, you know, it is healthcare institutions that are the disabling factor. Yeah. Um, and I think one of it's harder said than done. Like there is no easy solution here, but you know, just this shift in mindset is one of the starting points at least. And yeah. I think we've seen this a lot throughout our research and um, I think we have to look at, we have to start by looking at uh, healthcare institutions and medical education programs that are doing this. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, like we did do a lot of literature review, but we also did our own research and, and we looked at the top 10 medical schools listed by the U.S. News and World Report. And I'll leave names out of this, but only two of those schools, as we look through every single one of their curriculums, and very lucky in the sense that they publish all of their curriculums on their admissions website, only two of those even mentioned it. Um, oftentimes, and I didn't include this, care for individuals with disability was listed as a fourth-year elective, and in, in medical school, most fourth-year medical students use those electives to pursue the specialty that they plan on applying a residency in, right? So if like, you know, if I'm applying a residency as an ER doctor, I'm going to do like principles of emergency medicine. I'm not going to do peep up care for people with disabilities because it's not going to help me. It might not help me get into residency. And so it's like, it's like, okay, we, let's check a box. Let's say, you know, we, we offer it, right? So, so our, our students have the ability to learn about it, but nobody does because that's not how it works. And I think the, I mean, this shocked me, but I asked an attending urologist in the Mass General Brigham system. They preferred to remain anonymous. Asked them about their formal medical training in people with disability. And she kind of laughed at me and she said, you know, she, she, they reported that, you know, they had absolutely no training, no training in that. This is somebody that graduated from medical school less than 10 years ago. 
And they're a great model as to how that system stands today, right? And things don't change that much. They reported that there might be a seminar or two as part of continuing medical education, but they but for the most part, medical schools glossed right over everything. Intersectionality, when I asked about that, they said was completely out of the question. They were taught science and how to treat patients, but they were not you know, taught how to treat a diverse group of patients and what that might look like. So we know that, you know, the current state of medical education lacks a focus of intersectionality. So talk to me about the effects, not only of people with disability, right, but we also looked into gender and sexual minorities and care um, there. You know, how is intersectionality playing out in a broader lens? How are we seeing disparities in a broader lens? Somebody talk to me about that. Yeah, so I did some research uh, regarding gender and sexual minority discrimination in the uh, healthcare setting. And honestly, uh, it's not very surprising. We just see that people who do not identify their sexual orientation are, or and those who are presumed to be heterosexual, they typically have a positive experience with the healthcare setting, and they don't really have as as much of as a negative experience compared to, let's say, someone who's just part of the sexual minority. They tend to encounter more discrimination just because um, they have the risk of uh, HIV transmissions, more specifically, uh, gay men, and additionally. There's a comparison between nurses and doctors. Uh, both of them had slightly negative attitudes towards uh, gender, uh, sexual minorities. But it's interesting to see that nurses have more of a positive attitude compared to doctors. And this just shows uh, just so many problems, the hierarchy problems. So, for example, a doctor who spends more time in medical school and like what Dylan said, typically only receive around two, 10 hours of uh, disability training. For some reason, they're more yeah. negative towards minorities. And why is that? Maybe it's a more deeper rooted dilemma that yeah. not only impacts the patients and the experiences the patients receive, but also maybe in the workforce, like how the dynamics between a nurse and a doctor treat each other and since doctors have more of a say in the medical setting, it might influence uh, other workers in perceiving negatively uh, these minorities. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's not really surprising. Yeah, I agree. And uh, what do you guys have to say about that? It's a bleak scenario. You know, it kind of leaves you a little bit hopeless that, you know, there's a lot of people out there. You go into medicine, and this is somebody that, coming from somebody that plans on it and you go into medicine thinking it's such a noble profession that it's like oh i'm going to you know treat and care for everyone and it's like it's it's saddening to think that like that's not the case what i don't think and i i, I will say this i don't think in me, in most cases right i could be wrong in most cases i don't think it's an explicit bias i don't think it's somebody coming in every day and saying oh yeah, I'm not going to treat anybody with disability or I'm not going to treat anybody who identifies as gay. I don't think it's explicit. 
to Brian's point, I think it's it's implicit. It's this underlying root of inequality that it's it's almost abstract in nature, right? It's not like it's not necessarily a policy that says, you know, we're not to treat anybody with disability. It's kind of what we talked about that there's this really long-standing belief that people are not to be treated and not to be um, healed in the same way. I think that's what it's about, that it's not necessarily like these explicit biases, but it's it's an implicit thing. And it's why our education is so lackluster. It's why we have all these outcomes. It's, it's why we are having this conversation to begin with. Um, and I think, you know, we talk a lot about the, this idea that we talked kind of all about the education, but there's also a lack of research. And so why do we see this lack of disability awareness? Um, another study that we looked at, you know, said that two thirds of respondents in that same study who did not have a program did not think it was ever proposed or considered. And so when they were asked, hey, like, what do you think the ideal disability awareness program is? They said it should be two to three hours. It should be, it should span multiple courses. It should cover both children and adults, and it should encompass multiple types of disability. Caroline, what do you think about this, right? If you are kind of designing your curriculum, what do you think about this? And what do you think could be better about it? Um, you know, I think this kind of goes back to that check the box mindset mm -hmm. that we were talking about. And okay, yeah, two to three hours, like, you know, that's what you spend on an assignment, you just want to get done and out of the way. And, you know, I think, like, we just need to start by treating this as an actual issue, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, real actual lives depend on this. This isn't yep. just, you know, some module that we need to get through so we can become doctors you know mm -hmm. it's it's life or death honestly it really is and you know I think that we need to start coming up with plausible solutions that we can actually start implementing and you know I think having this conversation is a step in the right direction I agree. and you know that's the beginning phase but you know then after that i think one way is to actually incorporate people with lived experience into the decisions about what's going into the curriculum yeah. and uh you know people coming in with you know and not just doing what we said earlier of the guest lecture coming in for one yeah. hour and yeah. you know just saying oh we did it we include lived experience actually including people um you know, who can give perspective and really analyze what's going on and make changes. Um, one way to do this is, you know, there's been a huge increase in nurses with actual disabilities. Yeah, and so talk to us about that. I know you did a little bit of research there, but talk to us about that. Yeah, I did. I looked into this a little bit and um, there's been, you know, a significant increase in the number of nurses with disabilities, which, you know, really has multiple benefits. Um, you know, one is they're going to be going through the same medical education as someone without a disability and whoever else is, wants to become a doctor or nurse. And as uh, they're going through this training, they can really critique what's going on, saying this isn't fair. 
um, or, you know, we need to see a change here. We need to implement different practices. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just so many things that they have perspective on that someone without a disability wouldn't. Um, so that's kind of one of the advantages. Um, and, you know, just this idea of universal design. If we improve the medical education for people with disabilities, then it improves it for everyone, which is kind yeah. of the main idea here as well with healthcare in general. And, you know, I think that that's something that needs to be put at the forefront of this conversation is, you know, uh, putting the most marginalized first, as we've I talked agree. about. Um, and, you know, we they t also talk about, uh, you know, things along this idea of universal design, like um, maybe it's shorter work days, um, maybe it's more comfortable break rooms. Yeah. Um, and this is the same idea here, you know, that just improves the uh, quality for nurses and doctors in general. Um, and, you know, I think that um, we just really need to reduce this stigma. And by incorporating lived experience, this is one of the first ways that we can do this. Um, and, you know, not just going beyond this check the box mindset. Um, and, you know, not the natural state in our world, unfortunately, is not an equitable one. Um, we have to really work for this. We need people who are the higher ups of uh, healthcare institutions to deliberately yep. consider um, including time and resources to hiring nurses with disabilities um, and moving towards this idea that everyone can be included. Oh. Um, it has to be very deliberate, though, in this conversation. Yeah. Um, and we need people, you know, to really start this effort, people without disabilities to be able to be willing to hire nurses with disabilities and seeing the importance behind this. And um, that's just one step in the right direction. Yeah. So look, I, I think we've done an amazing job in laying out the issue. You know, we've talked about why there's no, not a lot of research. We've talked about what, what, you know, people think of when they think of like the ideal program, but let's lay out our solutions. Like we've done a lot of research. We've done a lot of reading. We've done a lot of thinking. Let's lay out our solutions, kind of what we think. Um, I think first and foremost, we know it's it's about making disability addressed in medical education. Um, but I think, you know, the concrete way to do that is making it a requirement for medical school accredi accreditation. I think I said that right. And I think so medical schools need to get kind of certified as medical schools that they do the right training for doctors. And I think it's a it needs to be a requirement from the American Academy of or the American Association of Medical Colleges, AAMC. It needs to become a core competency that you are that you were taught how to treat people with disability, that you were you were specifically and it's not the 10.2 hours, it's not the two to three hour seminar but you figure you you do this in every single class you take right just a medicine is such an interdisciplinary science it's we take in so many different attitudes and opinions and beliefs it's about you know thinking about disability when you're studying cardiology it's about thinking about disability when you're studying um the nervous system the the you know um the kidneys like 
everything that you do in medical school needs to be seen with this lens. And it doesn't just need to be seen with this lens, but it's also needs to be seen with an intersectional lens. Doctors, physicians, medical students need to understand how to care with people for disabilities, but they need to understand and learn how disability affects everyone. How do these compounding identities change, right? I think it comes down to lobbying and putting pressure on um, large organizations like the American Association of Medical Colleges to make it a requirement that schools include this in their curriculum. I think that's how we shift the attitudes, right? We teach the fact that this is the social model of disability, like push the ideas that are uncomfortable for people to learn about. They're uncomfortable in the sense that they're different, not because they're not true. They're very true. They're uncomfortable because they're different. Make people own the fact that they've probably been ableist for most of their lives, right? And that you're entering an ableist specialty, that this is, we have work to do. But I think it goes more than that. We have to talk about intersectionality. So somebody like lay out for me, what do you think is the best way to address intersectionality? We're talking about plausible solutions. So where do we go intersectional from here? Yeah, uh, apart uh, to reforms to the current medical education, uh, we need to ensure that there's a intersection intersectionality lens in the workforce. And I thought of uh, two approaches that could be adopted. Uh, for for one, I guess the implementation of human resources. I know uh, some hospitals probably already have that, but human resources that are focused to uh, serving intersectionality purposes. Yeah. Uh, for example, every company has one and it's, it could easily be adopted. Uh, Title VII is a tool to combat discrimination and why not Why not have it discrim uh, combat other uh, discriminations against other identities? HR can help enforce this, mm -hmm. this view of tolerance and just overall how regulating how company uh, employees work along with each other and how they treat their clients or patients in this case. Yeah. Uh, the second approach could be more of a team-based approach, more like a team-based coordinated care, yeah. an approach where, where a team culture is cultivated. As we learned in some classes from ILR, we learned that uh, the culture and values that are instilled to a company is a reflection of what they stand for. And a workplace that prioritizes uh, tolerance and better improvement for all people yeah. and overall just better treatment could help improve all identities to thrive in the healthcare setting. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, faculty member well, every faculty member could be trained to acknowledge the importance of embracing intersectionality. And this means not just defining it, but also training in how they interact with people with disabilities or yep. just any identity in general. Uh, the reason why we don't see this in the current healthcare setting is because there's a lack of it. And just what we've been discussing this entire podcast is there, there's not enough education that prioritizes disability studies. Uh, and overall, for example, there could be systems established such as a person-to-person -person support yeah. that could further support people with disabilities and just make it an overall overall welcoming environment for everyone. Yeah, I agree. Right. And going off of this, you know, 
like having um, actual nurses or doctors with disabilities, like maybe that will make patients more comfortable. You know, it's not surprising that they don't trust doctors right now. And there's a lot of anxiety invoked by people of multiply marginalized identities when they go to the doctor. Um, so actually having, you know, uh, people that they can trust with their lives at stake is really yeah. important. And, you know, another example is just like when purchasing physical equipment, you know, include colleagues with low vision on the yeah. purchasing team yeah. um, so they can evaluate the readability of screens with enlargeable text or audio display outputs, um, you know, coming up with flexibly designed equipment and information models um, that, give access to everyone. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, kind of back to what you were saying, Dylan, like leaders need to work on providing education and retraining. Um, you know, there's a lot of people at stake here and yeah. we need to actually hone in on really, you know, requiring these changes and not just saying we're going to do it. Um, we need policy change and we need people to switch over to this social model instead of the medical model. And, you know, there's plenty of uh, examples that uh, medical institutions can look at. You know, one example is the Centers for Independent Living. Um, right. These are designed, these are living centers that are designed and operated by individuals with disabilities. Um, they live and they work there um, and they run the, their, these facilities on their own. And, you know, uh, these places called SILs, they really have shifted the framework. They're not focused on the medical model at all. There's no blame on the individual for their disability. Yep. It's yep. all about society as the disabling factor. And they do an amazing job at, you know, finding ways to incorporate people coming from marginalized identities into society. And, you know, healthcare practices need to look at these examples and say, what are they doing that's working? How can we take ideas from there and incorporate them into our education, our workforce, et cetera, um, and really make a change? Yeah. So, guys, it's been an, an amazing conversation, but let's wrap it up. I think, you know, we talked a lot about these solutions, and I think we comes down to a few recommendations. Medical programs... And if you're listening out there, I hope you take this into perspective. One, please start including the voices of those with lived experiences. You need to center the most marginalized when making decisions about how medical education should be structured. Number two, include an intersectional analysis. Think about compounding identities. Nobody is the same. Nobody's experience is the same. Three, own up acknowledge the history of medicine's role in the oppression and mistreatment of people with disabilities, particularly in populations of color. There's, it is no longer the time to shy away from that, right? That is, that has happened and it is time to own up to it and acknowledge how it's still affecting people today. And finally, you need to explain how, why physicians have failed thus far. Let's rethink how preventative care is done Let's rethink how complex care management is done for people with disabilities. And let's start improving health outcomes. I think by educating our youngest physicians, change can be made. I want to wrap this up by highlighting a certain medical school. I have a friend that's in medical school at an undisclosed location, just because we're going to operate anonymous here, who, whose curriculum goes 
every day, every class, and factors in disability. I'm going to pull up what they said to me right now because it, it blew my mind and it's exactly what we're looking for. When I asked this student, you know, if they um, see caring for patients with disability in their curriculum at all, they said this to me. I'm currently in a clinical experiences disabilities class. It's a rotation, actually, where they are working with a psychiatrist who works with patients with mental health conditions such as schizophrenia. They've had panels of patients who are blind and or deaf come talk to the students about their experience with the healthcare system and what is most helpful that physicians do. There was another day that they had a panel of patients with autism come talk to them. They've heard from a number of patients with chronic painful conditions such as sickle cell disease and fibromyalgia. Um, and when I pressed from them more, she said, um, I really like how my medical school has incorporated patient-facing experiences whenever we are learning about the conditions in the classroom. For example, we learned about sickle cell anemia in our genetics course. Makes sense, every physician must. We read in our textbooks about how painful sickle cell crises are, but it wasn't until hearing from a girl who was my age talk about her experience that it really stuck with me and my classmates. The framework is there, right? That's what we want. It's there. It's about having the broader community accept it. It's about owning up and saying, this is where we're wrong. This is where we can be better. And it's about making it required. Let's not check a box. Let's make it required. Guys, it has been about an hour now. I could not thank you guys enough for such an awesome conversation. This has been fantastic and something that I really hope people listen to and people kind of analyze and think about and, you know, think about their own biases and their own experiences with healthcare. Um, it's been nothing but a pleasure, but thank you guys so much. Um, and yeah, this has been great. And just, you know, a reminder, it's a collaborative effort. And this conversation yep. is only one step in the right direction. And, you know, no matter if you're going into the medical field, or if you're in HR at a medical company, you know, Anything. everyone plays a role. And owning up is just the first step talking about it first yep. step. But we want to see real change. And um, we are ready to, you know, own up. And I think that's, the first thing that everyone has to do yeah brian anything else yeah uh i think it is totally uh possible we've seen so many reforms over the past few decades and you know just a dec like almost two decades ago we didn't have any gender studies yep. or any uh feminist studies and you know just being by in this class shows that it is very possible and maybe in the next 20 years, we'll see another great advancements, not only in the education, but also in the healthcare setting and, you know, just see less discrimination for all. Yeah. Thank you, guys, as always. All right. I'm going to pause this. Thank or you. Stop this.